0: Following our interview with Dr. Matthew Raphael Johnson on the crisis in Ukraine, we wanted to do a brief follow-up on the potential long-reaching supply chain implications of the broader conflict between the West and East. Russia, being targeted now by nearly all Western nations with sanctions aimed at its financial payments infrastructure, telecommunications, and high technology systems, conversely is a critical supplier of oil, natural gas, and grain to Europe. Russia has alternatives with its eastern neighbors principally China and India while Europe has turned towards America how much this matters to Russia versus how much to Europe and the West economically may ultimately determine who capitulates first politically I'm a i industrial <laughs>
1: We are here to destroy the control over the out of other
0: people.
2: I did not trade arms for
3: hostage.
0: It's been my years. The only the Russian have the
3: Hello, and welcome to the Myth of the 20th Century uh, Internet History Podcast. Uh, We recently recorded an interview with uh, Dr. Matthew Raphael Johnson, which perhaps you've already listened to at the time you're listening to this. So this falls under the general category of After Dark bonus content. Uh, We have a few things to catch up on regarding the state of the program and we would like to just cover some of the recent developments that have happened. Uh, You know, 2020, what what is this, 2022? I I, I lose track, but it's just an uh, extension. It's wild, man. I mean, yeah, this, we're still here. And I suppose you guys are still here too. And, um, well, I'm going to talk about, what's been going on lately and uh, where it might be headed. Uh, just a few points of housekeeping before we get started. Uh, yes, we were recently uh, shut down from the Patreon, which was, I guess, kind of remarkable, considering we were able to have a Patreon to begin with. I think that maybe we were able to have a Patreon because we didn't really advertise this very much. And... It was a relatively obscure page. It didn't even link to our content, but uh, someone took out time out of their day to make sure that uh, nobody could financially support the production of this program. So that's where we're
1: at. Uh, So if you navigate to the bottom of the myth20c.wordpress.com or myth20c.com or the American Sun or any of our affiliated whatever's you'll see an ethereum address uh donate eth or erc20 tokens to the nick fund uh i set that up uh for the nick fund uh it it really does help um so that's where that goes that's where 100 percent of that goes yeah
0: there's a reason uh the meme exists that nick does his podcasting from taco bell because uh on a good day, his home internet is uh, probably less capable than the uh, the fast food version. So we would like to uh, set this particular uh, avenue of donation aside for our good friend and wonderful co-host, Nick. So if you'd like to support him, yeah. And when you say home internet, it's it's a home internet that I hope to continue to
3: have. That is both the home and the internet. Uh, I want to say a big thank you to everyone who donated. In particular, it helped me to uh, be able to actually fucking survive. Uh, And it really meant a lot to me that people uh, would do this. Um, I know that sometimes the content has been, we've produced a bit less lately. Uh, There's various reasons for that. Uh, I'd like to maybe come to, even if not everyone is able to participate, maybe we can find a way that content can come back, at least on a weekly basis, as opposed to the bi-weekly basis that we've ended up with as of lately. Uh, but yeah, I, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who helped out. It, it helped me out a lot personally. Um, my situation is a bit more bleak than Some others, but everyone here has their own struggles, and it helps everyone that you guys support us. So I just wanted to say thank you.
0: Yeah, and and to kick us off, uh, we talked to Dr. Johnson uh, for, as we mentioned, about an hour, uh, focusing on the political economy and mainly the, the politics of what's going on in Ukraine right now. Uh, but uh, with, uh, with his absence and uh, our kind of typical perspective, we thought we would focus on things that we probably have at least a, a modicum of expertise in, as opposed to just a speculative opinion. And on a personal note, uh, this entire uh, crisis, uh, conflict, whatever you want to call it, in the uh, eastern part of Ukraine as of late has caught me... Um, not by surprise, but it has caught me unprepared to really talk to it intelligibly because on one hand, we have a media that lies to us about just about everything, but especially about uh, international affairs. And so I've I've really uh, had to dig pretty hard to try to get some grasp on what I can trust. And to be perfectly honest with you, I don't have a very high confidence level on this material as of now. I mean, we typically talk about things that have happened, you know, decades before, if not more. And the, uh, the advantage of time is that a lot of the, uh, inaccuracies can be filtered out by, uh, diligent researchers. But when you're talking about a current event show, uh, there is actually quite a bit more work and you have to, uh, keep up with, uh, a lot of the, uh, other people and really, rise above them. And so it's a challenge. But uh, getting to my main point here, I think one of the things that we are a little bit more uh, knowledgeable of is things like the supply chain, Uh, given that uh, most of us are interested in uh, uh, engineering type uh, subjects, you know, we we have to pay attention to things like uh, product flows and where to where do things like commodities and manufactured goods go? And, and personally, I have a huge passion for the subject. And so I feel conf- confident, uh, at least relatively speaking, talking about that particular aspect of this uh, right now, as opposed to things like the military or the, uh, the long-term geopolitical implications, which we have opinions on, but I think we'll defer to Dr. Johnson on some of that. But uh, to kick us off, I, I have some numbers that I'd like to... Uh, put things into perspective uh, or help people put things into perspective on. So we mentioned briefly in our interview with Dr. Johnson, the impact of sanctions Uh, and sanctions go both directions when you're talking about, uh, you know, a particular country because that country will typically retaliate. Uh, So if you don't buy their stuff or don't sell them things, they'll do the same to you. So the question I have is with the, the state of uh, sanctions being imposed on Russia right now by the West, which have been targeted uh, at things like uh, uh, aircraft, uh, aircraft parts, uh, electronics, uh, telecommunication services, uh, software services, software licenses. Uh, does Russia need that? Uh, and then vice versa, does the West, in particular in Europe, because the United States does not buy that much from Russia. It's probably less than 3%, probably much less than of its total imports. But Europe is a little bit different. It, uh, it imports from Russia. Um, Mm -hmm. a lot of its energy, if you're going to be specific, uh, other goods include, uh, wheat, but in terms of numbers, um, it also is not humongous. It is, uh, probably about 5% of its total value, uh, as, as markets would trade things. Now that doesn't mean that if push comes to shove, the essentials are, uh, are not what Russia is focusing on. So uh, like specifically things like food and energy, uh, are probably the last thing you'd want to remove from your imports, uh, if you depend on them, uh, because obviously you need to survive, uh, but you could get rid of things like, uh, I don't know, iPads, uh, you could survive without that. Uh, but in terms of just the total dollar value or Euro value, whatever currency you're using, it's all, uh, calibrated to, uh, a standard baseline. We'll just use dollars. Uh, the, the Europeans actually don't buy that much from Russia either. It's more than the United States, the percentage of total GDP, but it's not that much, but going the other direction, Russia, does buy a fair amount from the european union they import uh, about 40 percent of their total from europe and to be fair you know that includes all the countries of the european union Uh, so it's it's a little bit difficult to do this math but if you're looking at germany for example they also don't import that much from russia Uh, and going the other direction i'll i'll try to get those numbers but i don't want to overwhelm the audience nor myself and in getting into the too much on the weeds but i'm trying to ask the question and trying to present some information here which direction will the sanctions hurt more who's going to be hurt more by this does russia need trade with the west more than the west needs trade with russia that's kind of the first question i'd pose to people and uh hopefully some of those numbers I- help
1: I will uh, throw out that there is a massive uh, third party uh, involved in this whole situation. So if you look at uh, Russia and you look at Europe and you look at who is directly south and in between them, Ukraine, uh, well, no, uh, you have the Arab kind of extended Middle Eastern world. Like, of course, not just the Arab countries, but also Turkey, Egypt, Iran, almost all of those countries, I think perhaps all of them are huge net food importers. And a lot of that food comes from Ukraine and Russia specifically. And when we talk about like exports are this percentage of GDP, imports are this perspective of GDP to some extent, that's because we have cheap and abundant food supplies. Um, but when you start thinking about how if this drags on and if harvests are disrupted for the years because you can't pay for the uh, the crops for various reasons you can't pay for fertilizer for machinery uh, for all of the modern inputs uh, that you require in order to have a substantial grain crop or corn crop or anything um, that starts to have some pretty severe second order effects and i think that you know, one of the obvious ones is uh, refugee flows and Turkey's position in sort of mediating those flows while itself being a net uh, food importer. uh, It could rapidly devolve into kind of a very, uh, very complicated situation. I I don't. uh, These arguments that
2: the the relative value, the relative percentage of the imports that countries take in from Russia, from uh, Central Asia, from Ukraine, I've never really liked these arguments, um, and it's just this. It goes the same way as I've never particularly liked the argument that's um, often proffered in the United States. Well, you know, agriculture doesn't generate that much GDP for us. Why should we invest more in it? This is, you know, this is a very dumb talking point. This is a talking point that's proffered by people with like a sophomore level education in economics. Um when you're talking about utilities and food and basic energy inputs, it doesn't matter how small of a percentage of actual derived value there is. It's an absolute essential input. So I think that when, you know, not, I'm not accusing you of this, Adam, but when you look at those numbers and you say, okay, well, these are relatively small percentage inputs, uh, why do they matter? Well, Russia particularly exports, uh, it's not just food, uh, and it's not just oil, and it's not just natural gas, uh, and it's not just the, the, the exports that Russia controls. It's the exports that many other countries uh, need Russia to distribute for them. Or require Russian aid in distributing, or require or, or utilize Russian markets to do so, or utilize Russian translators to facilitate the process. You know the Russians are uh, an integral piece of nearly every single minor and major commodities market on the planet. Um, you cannot encounter a single supply chain of any note that. Did not somehow either directly or indirectly involve something to do with the Russians. At this point, uh, this has been probably the chief achievement of post-Soviet Russia: is finding their niche, and their niche has been, we will run, we will have a significant power in the commodities markets. We will no longer be a military juggernaut. We will no longer be some kind of scientific or ideological bulwark of, of something. Uh, strictly, they are you know, a, a commodities broker and a commodities producer. And, and there's a lot of value in that that's not easily tracked. Uh, additionally, Russians actually have quite a bit of heavy industry and industrial capability. For, so for both I, so internal... I have some
0: numbers on the commodity markets, if well, you'd like to know.
2: Yeah, well, kid, do you mind if I finish my my chief point really quick?
0: No, not at all. Go ahead.
2: Okay. So the Russians also do have a great amount of uh, industrial capability for domestic and, and uh, uh, external uh, product exports. Now... Like what? They produce rocketry, heavy machinery, small machinery. They produce plastic parts, injection molds. They produce boilers. I mean, you know... Any kind of heavy metal product, any kind of chemical intensive product, any kind of aeronautical product, the Russians will manufacture at least pieces of it. Uh, They do manufacture lots of electrical components. Uh, Russian electrical engineering is actually still pretty good, uh, all things considered, and they play a pretty big role. Uh, Russians also play a massive role in the global, uh, I would call the software supply chain. Um, there are an absolute insane amount of Russian engineers that play a huge part in the labor market of software development worldwide. Um, one example of this is that Deutsche Bank apparently, allegedly have had up to 2,000 people uh, and some of its chief engineers in Russian territory. They were actual Russian citizens They're all being run the production infrastructure for this global bank. Mm-hmm. Um, so my larger point here is that Yes, the Russians are, you know, don't make up the majority of anyone's trade portfolio except maybe, you know, kind of uh, are strange, irrelevant nations uh, like Kyrgyzstan, maybe. But what they do send is crucial food. You need food. You need oil. You need natural gas. You need neon. You need specialized neon gas. You need specialized optic equipment. You need industrial strength titanium. You need nickel. You need copper. Uh, they play roles in all of that and you have to understand that that affects every single market in turn and any slight disruption to any of these markets normally results in catastrophe, primarily because you have so many financial instruments that are tied up on the value chains of all these markets and the, and the commodities that are traded therein and the products they eventually go into. Uh, you know, you're talking huge corporate balance sheets. You're talking bank assets. This this uh, this can become a major issue. It can have true market instability. That's the role the Russians play. Now, you asked, who does it hurt more, them or the rest of the world? Indubitably, it hurts the rest of the world. Which is, I'm going to proffer the whole point. Uh, the whole point of this exercise is to deny, uh, I would say, Russia some of the things it requires in order to produce things that the world needs. And the entire point, I assume, is to cause such massive instability uh, that in some cases, uh, countries around the world will look to other suppliers often at much greater cost um, which will benefit certain parties. And in other cases, I think that the ultimate goal is to put some kind of, uh, mass global pressure on the Russian government, uh, for, I don't know what, uh, regime change or reform or, or something to that effect that makes them more, uh, amenable. But that's generally the gist of, of what's happening. And I do think that the Russians are, the Russians are not very well positioned, um, and have not been for a long time uh, to do all of this stuff on their own. They do they do import quite a bit. They import a lot of technology. They import a lot of specialized services. But you can argue that they import that because you know the world has effectively realized that they need the resources and the local skill sets that the Russians have in order to extract those resources to then deliver. Value to everybody. So, for example, the the entire – I read a paper once that the entire uh, electronics boom of the late 90s and early 2000s is, at the end of the day, actually attributable to the Russians on some level. Because the Russians provided so many rare materials. They provided so much cheap energy. They provided – so many industrial strength metals. So it was the only way that you could build all these factories, all these tools. You could build all this optics equipment, and you could you had the cheap energy to do it. They were at the the really the vanguard of that, um, in, in a lot of ways. So, removing them from the I don't know the supply chain, whatever that really means, but uh, causing even that level of instability uh will be felt, trust me.
0: <laughs> okay.
2: It, it is going to be felt.
0: All right, C- can I respond to this? Sure. All right. So, I don't uh I don't dispute that the rest of the world will feel the impact of a loss of Russian exports. My question though and my postulate here is that the Russians will feel the loss of the rest of the world's exports to them worse. And I laid out some of the numbers before as to why that is. I mean, I'll t- I'll take uh, Germany because I, uh, I didn't have the numbers, but I looked it up. And it's a great, great website, by the way. If you actually want to drill down to just about every major product category out there, I mean, and we're talking tens of thousands of categories. So, you know, I may not be able to recall uh, a number or two, on occasion, but I definitely can't recall all of those. So if you really want to look into this, go to trademap.org. Excellent website. It has tables, graphs, all free. Uh, And you can do it between all the different countries that it has data for. And between uh, Germany and Russia, uh, Russia imports from Germany about uh, $23 billion uh, a year. Uh, And the uh, the Germans import seventeen billion dollars a year from Russia, and Germany's a much larger economy than Russia. Um, it uh, I think it's about twice as large, approximately, and it, it could actually be more. I could look that up too, but it's it's bigger. I, I, I'm pretty confident in that. So right off the bat, you could see that they they depend on Russia less, and so if you removed all trade again, I'm just going back to these numerical arguments. Uh, They have less of an impact felt by cutting off the trade. Now, you could also say that the, again, the, the high tech sector, which I think is where most of these sanctions are being focused on, is going to be where a lot of this is being felt because they really haven't gone after the essentials. Um, such as uh, natural gas. I mean, the United Kingdom, for example, exempted natural gas uh, recently from the uh, the sanctions list that they have with Russia. And that actually caused the price of British gas to plummet by about 50% uh, because just of that one move. So energy is essential to Europe from Russia. They import about 40% of their uh, natural gas from there. Um, and they've they've really not touched it because of that. So that's, that's not being even contemplated at the moment, but what is being looked at, uh, is this higher tech stuff and the metals that you mentioned do affect that. Uh, so I mentioned before I have numbers on these, uh, commodities and I don't have every single commodity out there because there's lots. And if, especially if you work in electronics, there's, there's a pretty long list, semiconductors, especially, Uh, But according to the United States Geological Survey, the United States Department of Agriculture and the BP Statistical Review of World Energy, uh, palladium is the biggest by far uh, share of uh, the global commodity market that Russia controls, uh, 35%. After that, uh, industrial diamonds. Uh, The next one is uh, natural gas uh, of export markets, uh, and crude oil is about... 10%, 10%, uh, sunflower seeds, wheat, barley, rye, oats, on average, those represent about 10% as well. Um, and so th- those are significant, but of the metals that might be you know, listed here, uh, I guess palladium uh, and diamonds, uh, nickel is about 10%, uh, platinum is about 10%, aluminum, only about 5%, uh, cobalt, 4%, copper, about 3%. And so there are alternative sources for those things. For, for the larger ones, um, you might feel some impact. Uh, you also mentioned the, uh, the engineers, uh, the, the sort of brains that uh, the Russians have and the educational system has. That's certainly uh, historically true, and that's presently somewhat true. But what I would say is that a lot of those brains, uh, to the detriment of Russia, unfortunately for them, uh, have left. And I think there have been rumors that there is going to be an increase in that because the brain drain effectively flows to where the brains can make the most money. And that's just a reality of our global market. And I'm not defending that. I'm just stating a fact. Uh, I've worked with Russian engineers before. Um, you know, they're very smart. Um, they have a different personality, typically, than most types. Uh, but they, uh, they definitely have moved away from their home country. And I know of very few... Americans who have gone to Russia. So a lot of those people are already out of Russia. And that's uh, another problem that Russia is going to have going forward because they might lose more people. I'll stop there. I mean, well, actually, let me give you one more uh, list of things. Um, And this is actually coming from a very good video that I will put a link to. And I can't find the title of it, but basically I wrote down all the things that Russia cannot import from the West at the moment sanctions are including aircraft, which I mentioned, but specifically Boeing and Airbus are participating in the sanction of Volvo. And in general, uh, other car makers like Daimler-Benz are participating in this. And to note, Russia imports 95% of its car parts, which is enormous. Uh, Consumer electronics uh, are no longer going to be able to be sent to Russia uh, from companies like Dell, Samsung, Hewlett-Packard. Software, including Microsoft, Oracle, and SAP. Uh, Financial services like Visa, PayPal, MasterCard, the SWIFT interbank payment system from the Federal Reserve of the United States, which unfortunately or fortunately, but it's just reality, dominates a tremendous amount of the U- uh, the global financial system is being cut off from Russia. Uh, industrial machinery, uh, in particular, I think the most long-term potential risks that Russia has, and again, to just reiterate this like electronics topic, Taiwanese are no longer going to be working with the Russian uh, chip designers, uh, TSMC in particular. Uh, ASML, which is the uh, chip... Uh, chip manufacturing uh, equipment company from the Netherlands, which is probably the most dominant cutting edge uh, chip fab equipment maker is participating in the sanctions. And just to compare apples to apples here, uh, the domestic Russian semiconductor process manufacturing technology uh, the cutting edge that they have is currently at about 65 nanometers, which is essentially how small you can shrink those those circuits uh, on your semiconductor chip in order to produce a, a total chip. And that compares to, and th- this is pretty unbelievable if you know anything about how far semiconductors have come, but the cutting edge right now in Taiwan is looking at 3 nanometers. So Russia is probably about a decade behind, uh, if not more, in terms of catching up with some of the latest technology out there. Nokia and Ericsson are also uh, participating, so telecom is out. Russia might be able to get something from Huawei, which is the Chinese alternative. But again, they still are somewhat dependent on outsiders. So I think in the high-tech sector, they're looking at some problems.
1: When we talk about dependency, like There's no doubt that there's going to be a lot of pain on both sides. I mean, like, even to the extent that they remain sort of both sides, I've seen some kind of rumblings out of uh, German banks that they will be exactly as hasty in applying sanctions as the law specifically requires, and uh, not a bit more. But I think that it benefits... Like It's a misconception, kind of like they thought that, oh, well, of course in the future we're going to have these bombers, they're going to bomb a city, the city's going to surrender, boom, that's just how we're going to fight wars. And that turns out not to be the case. Your civilian population can absorb just about unlimited amounts of damage, turns out, and still be uh, semi-productive um, contributing members of uh, your national war machine. And the same thing applies to a lot of sanctions. So you can look at just about every uh, regime that the United States has imposed, uh, sometimes breathtakingly broad uh, sanctions for a very long time, like Iran, North Korea, so on and so on and so on. And the dynamic that you see is that to the extent that they target uh, sort of the broader population, uh, that ends up actually solidifying regime control because the regime suddenly has uh, control as a matter of state policy because they control the limited export and import routes and domestic manufacturing. They have the ability to say who receives those now very limited resources which shores up their um, support because by necessity you can't like be messing around with the regime and still get shoes because fidel says who gets shoes and who doesn't and there's some evidence that kind of targeting specific sectors may work a little bit better because those form a kind of a very concentrated uh constituency like putin isn't stalin like he has people that he fundamentally has to keep happy in order to remain in power like <laughs> people disagree with putin and they don't end up shot he hasn't imprisoned 20 percent of the population like the country is not an open air prison camp It might not be advisable right now to be like waving signs in Red Square, but that's true in a lot of places in the world. Uh, How that shakes out when you talk about like who can impose more concentrated pain on which concentrated constituencies, if it does degenerate into sort of uh, economic warfare, I mean, frankly, (laughs) Russia has the ability to uh, impose costs on some pretty darn concentrated constituencies in the West. Uh, You've seen, uh, for instance, targeting intellectual property holders. Um, The oil and gas sectors are extremely, like energy sector more broadly, are extremely politically influential constituencies in every single country because of that concentration of capital the jobs they provide and the ability to run uh, frankly run slush funds um uh, with those material flows so targeting energy exporters and importers versus sort of like generic consumers of microchips like it's not clear to me how well uh uh, how this shakes out, and it's not clear to me that every country on Earth is going to have some sort of a united front against Russian aggression uh, six months down the line. I think this this is the first time that you've seen kind of this... Uh, Organized spaz out um, that it's not get, a unified like, front, success.
0: it's the West, yeah. and that that excludes well, China, India, the, even
2: Africa, within the West. other countries. Yeah, it's weird, it's like eclectic.
1: Yeah, everybody black out your Instagram picture, everybody like take a knee, like uh, everybody like scream gay for like Texas abortion bills or whatever. Like, there are these little cyclical things, and this is the first, like, instance of that that I've seen happen in geopolitical terms, but it looks like exactly the same thing, which implies to me that, you know, six months from now, uh, after, uh, you know, the brief uh, period of spring in uh, northern winter, uh, or in uh, northern Europe, people uh, may have kind of moved on to the next thing. And I think it's totally possible that, Given the uh, the economic warfare that Russia is able to wage and their ability to pick off uh, certain members uh, of uh, these trade blocks, that if they maintain sort of an internally unified front, it's completely possible that, you know, they are able to shift this into a kind of a, an equilibrium that at least allows them to trade and to maintain their power level.
2: Yeah, I maintain that um, comparing uh, dollar-denominated trade flows between two countries uh, in terms of just pure nominal value is not—it's uh, I mean, it's a worthwhile analysis. But I think that there's a lot more to it. The, the first of all, there's a, there's a tendency in Western exports, in particular German exports, um, they are so overvalued the value is is intensely inflated and a lot of it is just clever marketing on behalf of the germans so i would say that yes the germans do have a, a big export profile they're sending to russia and do the russians need that yeah i'm not they, they do yeah clearly russia i'm not defending russia russia is a is a basket case country in my opinion but uh the the idea that uh it, it's comparable is I think kind of lacking. The, the Russians are providing the Germans with the kind of energy market and commodity market stability that they have always needed to develop high-value export markets. This has always been their problem, and it, and it will continue to be their issue, and they have relied on the Russians to satiate that for them. The German economic boom. Of the 90s and early 2000s that they have undergone, you know, they've been able to successfully retool the post-war economy and able to enrich parts of eastern Germany with, you know, new industrial jobs, new industrial centers, research and development uh, that entirely or
0: no in, in a no, huge no, no. part okay, in, in
2: huge part in a huge part.
0: I can name other factors.
2: Yeah, in resp- huge part, in huge part, they were capable of doing that because they had access to uh, Russian energy, Russian commodities, and, and some Russian engineering help. And so, yeah. I, I don't, I don't, I've never liked this, like you know how things are framed, where it's okay, well, you know, agriculture or utilities or uh, or manufacturing or energy, like in in terms of raw GDP or in terms of you know actual. Uh, Denominated value outputs, it's always relatively low compared to other sectors, finance, financial services, management services, tech, healthcare, all that, Uh, small manufacturing. But it is entirely essential. So I would say that the Russians are at a much bigger advantage here. The other issue that I think is worth considering is a little bit of game theory into how a lot of these global commodities markets work. Um, They're so – uh, prone to price instability, and they're so prone to total sort of financial failures due to that instability. And it's very difficult for a lot of countries, governments and companies uh, to accurately predict these issues and to plan ahead for them. This has been one of the major problems in the United States. Uh, you know, there there are, uh, without wading too much into the the very goofy politics of the uh, this supposed oil company lease issue, where they have all these land leases but they aren't using them or whatever. Um, there are, you know, there have been a series of laws made that have made it prohibitive for them. But part of it is that look, developing an oil field is is a major capex intensive thing it's this is not a, a like a fucking widget factory so you have to invest a lot of money and it's difficult to predict where the markets will be in five years and whether that thing pays for itself so this has been part of the issue why you know, it sounds politicized but why a lot of the domestic energy companies can't ramp up it's 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 functionally difficult for them to do that right now so i, I agree what with I you do, and what i would in one final point was add so your point, that, that's ahead. an example that's an example but uh, if you look at a little bit of game theory here, these markets are so insta- unstable. So if we look at vegetable oil, wheat, beef, pork, urea, fertilizer, all of that, a lot of it's coming out of Ukraine technically, which is you know technically different trade portfolios. Uh, Ukraine's not exporting anything right now. It's really not. Half of its you know warehouses and depots have either been burned down, blown up, or inaccessible, and it has almost no functional access out to the Black Sea. It has no functional access beyond the Bosphorus. It has very limited road and highway access right now. The Ukrainian army is very stupidly and I think perniciously uh, destroying the national infrastructure of the country. I've never seen anything like this for almost no reason. They're even doing this in western Ukraine. I think it's, it's just punitive. But – They are making it impossible for the Ukrainians to export all these products that the world is incredibly reliant on from them. And a little bit of price instability in any of these markets causes huge issues. So it's not just Russia we're talking about here. It is Ukraine. It is Belarus. It is Kazakhstan. It is Uzbekistan. It it can be Azerbaijan if, if the Russians really feel like making it sting. They can effectively shut that down immediately. So the the notion that this is all that's at stake, it's just what the Russians have under their under their belt is I think a little limited. And something I learned recently, that was fascinating. uh, Cargill, the American company is intensely invested in Ukraine. There's other American companies and agricultural companies that have been for a while, but Cargill in particular, big, and they started setting up shop uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, but the major Cargill investments happened in the early uh, Obama period and particularly after Maidan. And the Cargill was particularly interested in ports, Ukrainian ports along the Black Sea, including Odessa. And they are also heavily invested in warehouse networks across the country. Part of what I assume the wider sort of uh, supply chain policy here was, particularly after Maidan, it may be part of the re- reason why Maidan happened. Uh, we know, for example, someone brought up that uh, there's a massive amount of food that is exported, not just food, but fertilizer, urea, uh, foodstuff products, chemical products that are exported to Turkey, North Africa, Middle East, Lebanon, other places. Uh, after the you know tumultuous events of the Arab Spring and after a series of other political uh, shenanigans going on in these countries, it's p- possible that the United States was looking to uh, exert some level of stability after a period of instability. One of the ways that that was most likely accomplished was by lowering food prices, lowering fertilizer prices, uh, lowering chemical prices in these countries, and. Our good friends at Cargill made that happen. They invested the money into Odessa. They invested money into Ukraine to get those products out and deliver them directly to the Arab world and Turkey. So this is one example of how these, I think, supply chains generally work. Some of them are, you know, actually sort of spun up to you know, satiate political ends, and. With all of that now being thrown kind of into the grinder, you can kind of see why exactly this has become such a big deal, particularly for the United States. Uh, there this is one of the nodes in sort of the global food conglomerate that we've constructed. And this is a very crucial node that we were sort of building up for the last twenty years and turning into potentially our our you know sort of crown jewel in the area. And with it, we could have controlled the fluid and fertilizer supply chains for the Middle East, parts of Europe, and Central Asia. And that would have given the United States massive supply chain control. Uh, if the Russians are successful, you know, if the Russian calculation is, eh, we lose access to Visa, MasterCard, which have only been active in the country for a couple of years, and nobody uses them anyways, uh, and we lose eh, a couple thousand guys, 10,000 wounded, 15,000 wounded. At the end of the day, we just snatched 15 more percent of the global food market. Like, you know, I think that their calculus is if this is successful, nobody's ever going to fuck with us again because we can just cut the food off, which is exactly what the United States was positioning itself for. So this is, I think this is a lesson in how a lot of these markets and these supply chains actually really work and what they're intended to do. Uh, and, and the Russians have, like I said at the outset, a, a very particular point in these markets that allows them a lot of functional control. Sort of for another example, they own or they facilitate most of the uh, freight rail supplies uh, that uh, bring uh, uranium from Central Asia into markets around the world. Uh, some of these countries are not directly under their or – I'm sorry, they're not Russian, so it's Kazakhstan and and uh, and so forth. Uh, but these are effectively under Russian control, and the supply chains are maintained by Russian companies, and uh, the Russian military is right next door. So let's just say it's theirs. This is maybe not a direct trade portfolio that you can easily quantify, but this is an immense amount of power that they actually control. They can just – Cut your uranium supply off. I think if they really feel like it, and if there's a even you know six month twenty percent jump in uranium prices, uh, there goes the industrial <laughs> sector for France for at least a year. So you can see that.
0: Are, are there not substitute they, supplies of uranium?
2: No, I mean there are. So the French have run to this problem routinely, and in the fact, they're they're seriously. I think coming up against a wall right now, this would explain, for example, their continued, uh, now ending uh, war in Mali. Uh, This is, you know, they initiated this war almost 10 years ago, and uh, the cause du jour was anti-terrorism or something. And, uh, you know, they had French, uh, the French military was active, the French foreign legion was there, French special forces were there, they were, you know, Capping people left and right, but the reality is, is that Mali and countries around Mali uh, made up a huge amount of uh, French nuclear inputs, and also, uh, to an extent, they uh, were sort of needed for, I think, French visa programs. This is kind of like how France gets a lot of its scab labor, you know, in certain seasons of the year to do things. Uh, so this was, uh, this is a, that was a supply chain war that went on for 10 years. It's just wrapping up now. Uh, the French were probably reinitiate it, I think if their uranium supplies are choked off. Uh, but this, these are, this is sort of an example of how the world sort of really works. This is what these supply chains are. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't really buy the idea that, uh. They're easily quantifiable. Either yes, the Germans sell the 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 Russians. They sell everybody lots of overpriced cars that break down over two years. Um, I don't know if that's a strength for Germany or if it's a if it's a weakness that they're so reliant on people to sell them lots of raw materials and energy to do that.
0: I uh, I agree that. Uh, taking an equal weight to all the products, which is essentially what the the dollar value tries to do uh, to the total trade is probably uh, too simplified. Um, but I think it's a good starting point. And in order to quantify, I think what you're talking about, uh, there's several methods. But I think first of all, you identify specifically, what are your need to haves? And then you look at the value, I think a market value would be reasonable for each of those, and you compare. And you also need to look at, are there substitute supplies and at what price? And then you look at the total costs of either maintaining trade relations or breaking trade relations, uh, and to both sides. Now, there's also a psychological element here, whereby there are certain countries and people that are more willing to go without. And I think the Russians have demonstrated throughout history that they are probably more willing or able to do that than others. Uh, at least in the modern, uh, 2022 West, I would say they probably can do that better than we can. Um, but I think you can quantify these things. It just takes, it takes a little more effort. Uh, but I take on your point that things like, uh, energy and food and uh, fertilizer are very essential. And perhaps Germany could do without some of the goods that it it imports, uh, even including the high tech stuff. But I would say that some of the industrial machinery that Germans, for example, export, uh, the Chinese also export, uh, is essential, especially to its uh, energy infrastructure uh, for drilling and for things like that. Uh, You do need to have high quality machine goods. And you can't do without that if you want to run an industrial uh, military uh, or or a country. Uh, and then also um, regarding the uranium example, I think it's an interesting one, but I think again, if you have to, if you do look at the numbers, I think it does inform you quite a bit. Uh, so here are the numbers, could be wrong, I'm not a geologist, but uh, according to the Uranium 2016 Resources Production and Demand Report from the OECD, the total reserves in the world uh, as of 2015 is 1,780,000 uh, in Australia, and I've ranked it by the the, the most, followed by Kazakhstan, which uh, has 941,000 tons. Canada has 703,000 tons. Uh, there are one, two, three, countries in Africa, which, uh, all have about, uh, 400,000 tons of uranium. And then Russia has about 395,000 tons of uranium. So if you just compare Russia to Australia, you can very easily see that there's not a, there's not going to be uranium shortage. There is a seven times, well, maybe not seven times, but let's just say a uh, five times advantage from one country. Uh, Australia to Russia alone, and then if you look at the rest of the countries, I mean, Russia's probably I don't know, five percent, maybe less. Um, so I think you do need to look at the numbers at a certain at a certain point. Sure, but sure. You know, so,
2: but the, but there are there's there's lots of other factors here. So for example, it's not just you know will there be a, a pure uranium shortage just nominally? No, you're right. And the U.S. is very uh, fortunate that it effectively has uh, control, to one extent or another, over both Australia and Canada. Um, speaking of supply chain wars, the uh, the U.S. Uh, ordered sort of crackdown on the uh, the Canadian truckers was effectively a short-lived uh, supply chain war because they threatened <laughs> a... Uh, a They did temporarily threatened uh, an immense amount of, uh, of value being traded, both raw commodities, finished products. Uh, uh, but um, yes, you're right. So there's no pure shortages going to happen. But again, it's just a problem of, okay, where are the actual uh, nuclear facilities located? And how easy is it to get out of X country and how easy is it to get from X country to y uh, nuclear site so if there are, if we have a predominance of them in France i mean you know so the world's reliant on you know name certain products or services that are coming out of France you need the lights to stay on to fill the demand for those products. And France has quite a bit of exports, and it plays a massive role in global finance. It plays a big role in, I would say, just the white-collar markets globally, everything from software engineering to consulting, geological surveys. uh, French are important. Um, And if you turn the lights off in France or you make it prohibitively expensive and you have to start power rationing, which can happen uh, even if there's not that much of a price differential, like it becomes a huge issue. Uh, and the French economy, like most economies, are not very elastic. They're actually fairly fragile in the modern era. Like you know, small price increases can actually cause huge disruptions. So it's difficult for the you know for the French to start sourcing all of their uranium that has to be refined specific ways for their sites uh, directly from Australia. That's expensive. It's time-consuming. It's more air prone It's not as a, much of a used supply chain. They would have to work out additional deals with the Australians. Similarly with Canada. Uh, so the French have, you know, long positioned themselves to be bigger or big importers of African and uh, Kazakhstanian Russian uh, uh, uranium. So can they theoretically? This is this is just a, this is a, a working example. Can they theoretically sort of reconfigure their supply chain to work with that? If, if suddenly you know, there's stability problems in Africa and it's a, it's a no-go for a certain period of time getting it out of Russia, Kazakhstan, Central Asia, um, yeah, they could. But there's a, there's a ramp-up time. There's all kinds of environmental concerns. And suddenly you're looking at a couple of years to make that work. That's a couple of years of higher prices, lost value, political instability. Like you, this is, these are how these things break down fairly quickly and it can easily just as much happen to the Russians. Like you brought up the car parts thing. That's an insane number that the Russians import so many. Yeah. It's parts. hard
0: that's, to believe. Like but the, it, it's like, ca- if it's, if if it's true, that's bad. That's really bad. It's, and it's, and it's I, cat- I work on totally cars and if you can't get parts, you're going to have to spin up an entire machine. Uh, nation. I mean, you're going to have to have a machine shop in every every guy every second person's uh, uh, closet because your your entire transportation infrastructure is going to fall apart. Your production infrastructure is going to fall apart. I mean, you depend on car parts to make things happen.
2: And and you can see the the cascading effects of that, right? So, like, let's say you know the same example I was giving with you know the French. Let's say that the, the relative uh, electric prices, the gas prices as well, go up in tandem. Suddenly, French are spending more money on the energy. They're not producing as much, or what they produce costs more. Same for the Russians. So, suddenly, there's like a massive, you know, genuine high quality car parts shortage. And Russia's a rough country. I mean, there's a lot of rough terrain, the conditions are abysmal most of the year. Um, particularly beyond the Urals. If people can't get to work, they can't get from X to Y, the Russian government has to find a way to solve that problem. That requires money. It's less money going into other things. The products that the Russians are putting out, their energy, their refined commodities, machine parts, whatever it is they're doing, that goes up in price or it becomes difficult to even attain it political instability so the same pattern repeats over and over again i think that everyone is going to get totally screwed if this gets out of control now there like hank was mentioning you can you can you can sense that particularly the western europeans are extremely unhappy that they have been dragged into the kicking and screaming by the united states which is the country with maybe the least exposure to any of these problems or to a lot of these problems um, and has maybe some of the most capability to quickly ameliorate them if needed. Uh, The Western Europeans will probably, at the drop of a hat, if they feel like they need to or the moment has presented itself, will reduce or drop most if not all these sanctions, and they will immediately reopen supply chains. I made the case a while back, I can't remember if on the show or to someone in private that um, from the German perspective, for example, it absolutely does not matter whether or not Ukraine is an independent state. Uh, From a business perspective, it would actually be more effective for the German point of view if Ukraine was not independent. That's not a value judgment, but that's just the truth of the matter for the French, it would probably be the same judgment. Now they have, there's other concerns other than business concerns about why they might not want that. And I feel like as though they have been dragged into this by the Americans and by other Eastern Europeans who have a particular grudge, uh, but they will probably drop a lot of this when they feel they can, whether the crisis resolves itself or they just become desperate, Um uh, but if this sort of thing continues, if you have spiraling uh, sanctions, I believe the Russian government is, uh, has mentioned that they will potentially ban most exports for the rest of the year. Uh, this, you know, you can see the direction in which this can go.
0: What, Suddenly, what is what is that? Exclude you said most, but what is it? It's got to exclude energy. I mean, that would be a catastrophe. No, no question. No,
2: they, no, they, they, I think explicitly energy was counted amongst the commodities they might ban. Yeah, I mean, it it is that's insane. They're making
1: making noises about we will fulfill our existing contracts and then you can go fuck yourself. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) that is the nuclear button for them is to basically say, like, there you you go. They always have the option of we'd love to fulfill our contracts, however. Yeah. Uh, your friends, uh, the Nazis in Ukraine exploded the pipeline. And, uh, therefore, right. I mean, you're welcome to rebuild it, I guess.
2: Yeah. And so they, you know, everyone has leverage on each other and this is, you know, the irony of a lot of this, this global supply chain shenanigans is that, uh, it's hard to tell if this was always the intention, um, if this was the intention of the, uh, say, the New World Order idea starting in really in the late 80s was to, you know, enmesh the entire planet into, you know, sort of uh, unified supply chains where it's not even really clear where a single piece of software comes from. It, you know, I, I, I think it
0: absolutely was an objective.
2: You know, So it was definitely objective, but it wasn't clear if this was ever considered as a potential uh, uh, sort of tail risk. In that, you know, suddenly you have very, very fragile, inelastic economies, um, particularly economies that used to be fairly robust and resilient. Um, You know, for example, it's it's too complicated to tell, you know, what the competing political and economic interests were, like how much of the sort of the global overarching stuff was – done haphazardly you know taking into account like national or local interests uh one of the classic examples is like the french agricultural market within the eu the french have basically created a really internally lopsided and um uh non-optimally performing agricultural market in the eu uh just through sheer willpower and, and through uh you know the strength of being the biggest country in the EU effectively. Um, but th- you can see this, for example, in like, let's say the French nuclear industry and the global economy. And this is like an immense risk, not just for people that were you know, sort of envisioning like we're gonna have these interconnected supply chains and the French are gonna deliver all of this X, Y, and Z. And as long as we maintain these vital imports to that area, we get this out of it. like. Did anyone ever sit back and say, hey, like, what if uh, the Russians and the Kazakhs just suddenly stop providing that? And uh, what if there's a really bad storm season and it's difficult to get, you know, literal tankers from Australia to France to be properly
0: refined? To I, I have a similar question, but I'm actually curious who you think in your mind hey. is possibly asking that. Are you talking about like the U.S. military the Wall Street? Or are you talking about the Davos crowd or whoever? The I hell would say, well,
1: all of them,
2: all of them, because they all they're, have a functional stake, right? Like they the do, Davos but they're a little different. Has, they're all different, sure. Even, you, you use the U.S. military, like <laughs> political instability in France will be it will be, it'll be, it'll be it's concern of the United States military mostly because we've made this catastrophic decision of, of keeping these bases around all across Europe and it'll suddenly be like a hot target, uh, for the wall street crowds. Absolutely. You know, I'm sure a tail risk they considered, or maybe they didn't consider, uh, like, like I mentioned it, you know, earlier when I said, uh, you know, how important Ukraine has become and sort of one of these nodes of the empire, um, And why these people are so apoplectic about it. It's possible that whatever the Russians are trying to do, whatever they're doing, uh, has thrown such a potential uh, tailspin into this very fragile, still sort of burgeoning idea of a global system. Not just people talking about, oh, like the ideology, all this, all this like it's all a smokescreen. Nobody's actually like cares about global democracy. Uh, nobody, nobody cares about that. This is really just, you know, this is supply chains and commercial state. Yeah. And so I think that the Russians have severely disrupted something. I don't know what it was, but they've disrupted something fairly. Remarkable.
3: Yes. This is the one point I would like to interject into this. This is uh,
2: relevant to, Well, look at this.
3: It when you talk about planning and these complex systems and where globalization and global capitalism has gone past the twentieth century to where we are now, you can you can much easier accommodate for exogenous weather events, like Hans mentioned, than you can for the human factor and the Prospect of continued political and escalating political instability to the point where the, my assessment of this and it was nice that, that we were able to talk to dr Johnson but i i just i've approached this whole issue as i've seen it unfold with increasing skepticism as to i mean many people many things that many people have been saying have of course been vindicated but I don't know if anyone knows where this is going to go, because I think in many respects, a system has been created that is maybe more complex than people can actually manage. I mean, it to predict, uh, people can speculate as to what extent there are people on both sides of a conflict who are cooperating. But, I mean, if you look at history and how wars have proceeded, there's a lot of arrogance and a lot of hubris regarding the ability to manage and control these, these kinds of complex events that are driven by, at the end of the day, still uh, two-legged entities.